Welcome to the Abundant Life Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message by our guest speaker. For more information about Abundant Life Church, please visit www.abundantlifechurch.org. Anybody here from Fort Atkinson? Well, well, praise God. What year did you graduate? No. 75. Well, you're just a baby. Praise the Lord. Amen. Traveling through some of the places where you grew up, this can be quite emotional sometimes when you think back at the memories. That was before I knew the Lord, and being able to see some of the relatives and all of that is uh, heartwarming. And we continue to pray for some of my family that's not in the church. I don't know why God chose me, but uh, he reached out to me, and I listened to that call, and came into this wonderful fellowship. And uh, you folks are blessed here today because God is reaching out, God has touched you, and God has filled many of you with his spirit, and we thank God for that. Could I just see the hands of those that have come out for the very first time, just quickly? Thank you so much for coming out to uh, the church. Amen. The Lord is good. The Lord is awesome. Praise the Lord. I'm going to go into my presentation and we thank uh, all of the staff, those that took us out to eat. And uh, you've been so kind and we're so blessed for that. Amen. All right, let's see if this gadget works. We used to have slide projectors and the bulb would go out, you know, right in the middle of your presentation. So there's always a technical problem that can exist whenever you use electronics. So we're hoping that all of this works fine today. So far, so good. All right. I remember uh, the Mercury launches, then came the Gemini, then the Apollo, and uh, then came the space shuttles, and today NASA is working on the Orion project, and President Trump has initiated the Space Force, and not to mention all these uh, independent contractors wanting to take civilians off to space. But the space race began in 1957 with the Russian Sputnik, the first to circle the Earth. It was basically a satellite the United States followed that same year with the Explorer 1. That was also a satellite. It was then that President Dwight Eisenhower signed a public uh, order creating what we know today as NASA. In 1961, the Soviet cosmonaut Yuri Gagarin became the first person to orbit the Earth in the Vostok 1, and the United States' effort to send a man into space was through the Project Mercury. And of course, they tested the craft with chimpanzees. And there's Ham. That was his name, Ham. And uh, today, it probably wouldn't be uh, politically correct to send a chimpanzee up there. But anyway, in March 1961, Ham went up to space before Gagarin's launch. Then on May 5th, 1961, the astronaut Alan Shepard became the first American in space 
Though it was not an orbit, he went straight up and back down into the Atlantic Ocean. And uh, later that May, President John F. Kennedy made a bold public claim that the United States will land a man on the moon before the end of the decade, meaning the 1960s. In February of 1962, John Glenn became the first American to orbit the Earth. And by the end of that year, the foundations of NASA's lunar landing program, dubbed the uh, Project Apollo, were in place. And of course, the Apollo suffered a setback in January of 1967 when uh, three astronauts, Gus Grissom, Ed White, and Roger Chaffee, were killed after the spacecraft caught fire during a launch simulation. In 1961, a Mercury flight called Liberty Bell 7 sunk in Atlantic after Gus Grissom opened the hatch too soon. And I'm going back to that event because from that point on, they called on uh, frogmen such as myself to help secure that capsule, place a collar around it, and to lifeguard the, the astronauts so that they would be safe. I was serving in Vietnam on Christmas Eve of 1968 when I heard a live broadcast on a, uh, from the Apollo 8 crew that you see there, William Andrews, Jim Lovell, Frank Warman, and they were reading... Uh, from the book of Genesis, the creation story. And little did I understand then, while uh, returning to the United States, that I also would be involved in the recovery of Apollo 10 and 11. We had three full Navy rescue teams. And there were also three full helicopter crews as well. Uh, there was a sea anchor man. That was my job. There were two men that would follow the sea anchor man. And they would have a 200-pound collar. They would, would, three would attach it around the uh, capsule. And then there was a fourth man that would put on a biological isolation garment. And his job was to decontaminate uh, the capsule and the astronauts. So the Navy uh, had made sure that we could do our jobs backward, forward. Dozens of times we would rehearse. Houston sent out what... You see there a boilerplate to San Diego and in the San Diego Bay. Uh, we honed our skills by going through uh, the recovery over and over again dozens of times. And uh, we used uh, the Navy helicopters that you see there. And uh, we had to maintain all the equipment and so forth. But this provided the helicopter crews time to train as well and the ship there, the USS Hornet. So when the time for blast off grew closer, we took a commercial jet from San Diego all the way to Hawaii, and we boarded the USS Hornet. And the USS Hornet today is a museum out in Almeida, right there in San Francisco. And they'll have a huge celebration. They're already doing it now, but uh, during the recovery phase, the week of July the 24th, there'll be a lot of celebrations there. The Hornet uh, was quite active in World War II. There was eight of these ships that were named the USS Hornet. This particular one was credited with destroying 1,410 Japanese aircraft. She came under fire 59 times, yet she was never hit. Now, while aboard the ship, everyone continued to rehearse his jobs. Uh, we frogs assumed the role as astronauts. Uh, to help the helicopter crews practice hoisting us up in that one man, Billy Punet, named after the man who invented it. And we, the bosuns honed their skills. 
uh, retrieving the bobbing capsule from the ocean, the radio men fine-tuned their communication equipment, the quartermasters uh, practiced their navigation skills as well. And while we did that, there were various civilian people, uh, NASA and uh, the, the news media and all of those people aboard the USS Hornet coordinating all this as well. So the Eminem blastoff mesmerized the world. America invaded Cape uh, Kennedy back then in 1969, over a million people. People from all walks of life used every kind of transportation you can think of to get there. They camped out uh, in campers and on top of their cars. And if you've ever seen some of the pictures, it's kind of interesting. And for eight solid days, three men in spacesuits held the world captive. Uh, front page headlines hogged the news uh, every single day, but the public didn't seem to mind. They were addicted to this, like a drug he might be to his daily fix. And since the Hornets population had no satellite TV or access to local newspapers, uh, we were getting our news by shortwave radios and daily briefings, and once in a while they would fly in you know, two or three day old newspapers from Hawaii that we could look at. So in addition to one million at the launch site, an estimated audience of over 700 million people viewed the launch on their televisions, a new record at the time. President Nixon viewed it from the Oval Office in the White House. Now, few outside of Houston's control room knew that the moon landing almost ended in disaster. With about 1,000 feet to go, Armstrong realized that the lunar module's guidance computer was steering uh, the ship towards a field of boulders. So Armstrong took manual control of the Eagle and with only 30 seconds, 30 seconds, a few left, found a place to land. And that, had, that field had to get him off the moon as well. So close to 30 million American households watched the moon landing on their televisions, and millions of households stayed up to watch part of the moonwalk. At 9.56 p.m. Houston time, Neil Armstrong stepped out of the dish-shaped landing pad onto the surface of the moon, and the words that he spoke were immortalized at time. Uh, that's one small step for a man, one giant leap for a mankind. And 500 million people watched the televised moonlight. Now, the rendezvous uh, with the Columbia, after they took off from the moon, um, they entered the Earth's corridor uh, atmosphere, and it's extremely critical. Too steep an entry would burn them up. And too shallow an entry would make them skip out into the solar orbit, never to be seen again. Now, splashdowns are highly dependent upon good weather conditions. And the night before the splashdown, there were thunderstorms in the area. And so NASA uh, moved the site 250 miles uh, from where we were located. And that means the astronauts are on their way back. They have a four-day trip to get back to the Earth. But that was before they entered the Earth's atmosphere. And uh, you can see that the astronauts began to feel the effect of gravity as they sped 24,800 miles per hour towards Earth. And the weight of the gravity continued to increase until they felt the effects six times the pressure of normal gravity and uh, driving them harder and harder back into their seats. 
Now, just inches away from their backs, they were protected by that heat shield. You can see it at the bottom of the capsule there. And a blistering red-hot inferno of flames reached 5,200 and some degrees Fahrenheit, leaving a long trail of fire resembling a falling star. On Apollo 10, I had a better view of the capsule burning through the atmosphere, and it looked like what you'd see a falling star at night. You could just see a long trail, and that fire was from the friction of that capsule burning through the atmosphere. The astronauts felt a sharp jerk as the 16-foot drogue chutes opened to help stabilize the capsule in order for the three main chutes to open. And the Apollo 11 command module had traveled 952,700 miles in eight days, three hours, 19 minutes. And uh, listen to this. They landed just within 18 seconds behind the flight time that NASA figured they would hit that ocean. And that's pretty amazing. And they were within two miles from the destination where they thought they would land in the ocean. And that's with a uh, correction the night before, 250 miles. And that's with the wind in the parachutes, you know, uh, taking that, par uh, that capsule to wherever it wanted to go. So gathered around the landing point was uh, nine ships, 9,000 men, 54 aircraft, all led by the USS Hornet. And the USS Hornet was now yet 13 miles away from where it landed. It had not yet arrived on the site. The Arlington, the communication ship, was just a mile or so away. President Nixon was on that ship, and then he would fly over to the USS Hornet a few minutes later. Now, our helicopter crew was um, 10 miles away. Uh, the particular crew that I was on, we were chosen and designated a primary crew. That meant that we would be in the water. However, safety is most important, so there were three teams up in the air. And whoever got to the capsule first would be the ones that would get in the water. But when that capsule hit the water, Buzz Aldrin was supposed to flip the lever that would jetson those three big parachutes. And uh, his hand was knocked away from the lever. And so the parachutes and the wind in the parachutes turned that capsule upside down. And so it was now unstable too. And they had to flip three switches that uh, inflated three big balloons. And it took several minutes for that capsule to upright itself. And that was uh, bad for them, but it was very good for us. So our helicopter was racing to the scene. The other helicopter is hovering right above the capsule. They're salivating, they're thinking they're gonna get in the water. And just as we arrived, someone told them to move out of the way, and uh, the rest is history. I was the first young man in that helicopter door. I jumped in the water with that sea anchor bag, and out there on the table, you can see the bag, and inside that bag held a small parachute. Excuse me, I was about ready to sneeze. And my job was to swim up to the capsule. I had a 50 pound scuba tank on, swam up to the capsule and attached that and that would cause a drag underneath the, the capsule. You see out in the ocean there's a current and that capsule would be moving along and then the, the waves are quite boisterous. If you've ever seen that YouTube video of the frogmen's roll of their 
Apollo 11 recovery that's on YouTube right now, you can see the boisterous waves that go up and down. I actually grabbed the handle before I put on that collar and it lifted me right out of the water. And uh, the, the, the sea was quite rough that day. So after I attached the sea anchor, two more men came in the water with me and we attached this flotation bladder around the capsule. And then you can see uh, the Billy Punet coming down. Clancy Heidelberg was already in that raft. We attached one raft to the capsule. Our raft had to be upwind 25 yards because of the contamination procedure that uh, was required from NASA. We wanted to make sure that there were no lunar pathogens that would uh, you know, affect the Earth. A lot of people on the YouTube comments are saying, well, if it's coming back 25,000 miles per hour, why do you need to decontaminate it? Because uh, that fiery entrance would kill all the germs. Well, inside the capsule are all the uh, moon rocks and samples and things that weren't affected by the re-entry and astronauts as well. We wanted to make sure that there were no moon germs uh, we had a name for one if we would have caught one. We were going to call it the lunatic. <laughs> so here's Clancy Hadleberg. He's got on that biological isolation garment. He's one of the frogmen. And his job is to scrub down the rafts and the capsule. You can see the canister that he has there. And it's a strong uh, fluid there, betadine and other elements, uh, hypochloride and things, bleach and he's washing down the entire capsule. The astronauts uh, came out. They were given these uh, biological isolators garments to put on. We called them big suits for short. And you can see the astronauts in the raft and uh, Clancy is still washing down the capsule and the astronauts were washed down. And then you can see our raft. We came in close now after all the decontamination. We were required to be on scuba gear, uh, breathing. If we came off of that, they had a quarantine facility waiting for us as well. But uh, we got in close. You can see me on the bottom left there with that yellow tank. Uh, the photo pool gave us five cameras. Mike in front of me there had four of them. I had one. And you can see the other frogman, Clancy, out there in the ocean. He's going to grab that Billy Punet and he's going to act as a lifeguard. And I took that picture. I think it was the only one that came out without my thumb in the lens. <laughs> and there you see one of the astronauts going up into the helicopter. All three are, are aboard, and then they would fly back to the USS Hornet, where President Nixon was waiting to greet them. And uh, we're out here in the middle of the ocean waiting for the Hornet to come by. The astronauts land on the ship. The helicopter's taken down in an elevator. And uh, they disembark the helicopter and they go into a little tube into the mobile quarantine facility there. You can see the President Nixon's there to greet him, the Marine Band. There were other dignitaries. Kissinger was there and some of the other astronauts. We're still out in the water, missing all the festivities. You can see that little orange bag on my belt. That's the one that's out there that held that sea anchor. I kept it as a souvenir. And you say, well, what about those flowers? Well, it was the 1960s. <laughs> on Apollo 10, we put a flower on that hatch window. 
And uh, for some reason, NASA wasn't happy about that. And they told us no uh, messing around in this one. So when we woke up early in the morning to board the helicopters, we had these flower decals. You don't want to waste them, so I just put them on my wetsuit. And there's Westchester on the left, and there I am on the right. If you ever see any pictures in a magazine or encyclopedia, if you go out to Smithsonian, whatever, and you see frogmen rescuing astronauts in pictures, if you don't see the flowers, it's not me. <laughs> and there you can see us giving the peace sign. Again, it was the 1960s. And so what do you do when you're waiting for the ship? Well, we goofed around. We played the king of the capsule until the sharks showed up. Seriously, they did show up. So we got back on the raft and uh, there was a whale boat out there with a rifle and we're waiting for the ship. There you can see the ship in the background and uh, you can see the capsule. And I, I took this piece. Oh yeah, when I'm out there, I'm, we're, we took our souvenirs. Uh, we stripped off some of that gold captain foil and there are a couple of pieces out there for sale all our proceeds do go to Vietnam our work there and by the way Wednesday night we mentioned please pray for the meeting that we're having uh, the word came back that we had over 30 received the Holy Ghost so we're excited about that your, God answers your prayers appreciate that And so you can see the ship, the helicopter, and now there's the capsule. The ship's getting closer. And, um, you know, the ship is like 200 meters long. That little capsule is like a little thimble, you know, in your swimming pool. Very small. We we're hoping that that coxswain knows what he's doing. He comes right alongside. Uh, my job was to stand on top of the capsule. You can see the flowers. And uh, a bosun mate's going to shoot out a line. And one of the frogmen will catch it, hand it to me. And uh, behind that line is a bigger line that has a bigger cable. And you can see the uh, loop I'm hanging on to there. There's a reinforced one right below it. We'll attach it to that. And then the capsule is taken aboard the USS Hornet. And there you can see it boarding. And uh, then Mayor Daly flew us to Chicago and he gave us the key to the city. We had a parade and... And uh, for three days we had party, party before the Lord. And then out in uh, Washington, D.C., right there at this uh, Air and Space Museum, uh, that capsule normally sits. It's on tour right now. And that's my wife and my daughter. And we're standing there a few years back. Praise God. Well, God is good. God is good. Little did I understand that uh, while I was out there rescuing the astronauts, I was only 20 years old. Uh, so to speak, I'm standing on top of my world, but little did I know then how much God was trying to rescue me. I came of age in what you know you call the 1960s. Some of you folks might remember those days. We were invaded by those British singing groups with the weird animal names, you know, the beetles, the birds, the monkeys, the turtles, the animals. And uh, girls, you know, put flowers in their hair. Men began to grow their hair long. We decorated up these little minivans, drove off into the sunset. The theme of the day was if you're not with the one that you love, then there's my 60s group. 
we're dinosaurs, but we're still alive. And so it was kind of a, a really a weird day to be a young person without moral uh, background or a foundation to build your life on. And when after the Apollo, I roomed with um, some roommates, teammates of mine that were five years older. They were into these psychedelic drugs and things, and they, they introduced me to all of that, the LSD, the mescaline, the pot, and hashes, and all the things that were available. Remember the 60s, we had uh, Haight-Ashbury out there in California, the Monterey Film Festival. You had uh, Timothy Leary, a college professor, promoting all this LSD use and all of that. All these strange things, the Manson family, all these, these events were taking place when I was just a young guy. I never thought I'd be taken up into the drug scene, but uh, I was losing friends in the Vietnam War, high school buddies from Fort, and it was quite devastating to me. And, and there's some boredom there waiting to go back to Vietnam after the Apollo. And so I began to get more involved in these drugs. And then I guess there was, I went to a very deep, dark place in my life and become... Uh, accustomed to getting high almost every day. So when I went back to Vietnam, I was pretty well messed up on these drugs, sad to say. <clears throat> the first time I went to Vietnam, I went as a patriot. You know, John F. Kennedy was voted in as our president um, when I was in junior high school. He said, we'll bear any burden, we'll pay any price for freedom. He said, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. I remember in high school, we said the Pledge of Allegiance every day. We sang the Star Spangled Banner. I remember on Veterans Day, we'd stand out on Main Street, Fort Atkinson. The band would play, and behind the band were men who fought in uh, the Korean War and some World War II and, and so forth. And, you know, we were just proud to be Americans. And so when our country called on my generation to go fight in that war, we went without any questions asked. But after we got over there, we soon discovered that this war was not being fought in a conventional way. There were no front lines. It was a war of attrition, body counts. Uh, they were taking hills. Hundreds were dying, but then they would vacate the hill. It just didn't make a lot of sense. So back home in America, the American public began to question that war as well. The Life magazine posted the faces of all the boys that were killed in Vietnam that one week's time. There was like 240 faces of young men in that magazine. It was also the first war that they called the living room war because moms and dads now could turn on the television set and you could uh, see segments of the battles that were being fought and the people that were dying and so forth. And, you, you know, the American public can only handle so much. So it became a very, very uh, controversial war. There was a huge anti-war uh, effort going on in America, mainly on the college campuses that spread throughout America. In 1969, think of this, the National Guard was called to college campuses all over America to, to stop the rioting. Governor Reagan, at the time in California, closed down the schools for four days. I'm talking about kindergarten all the way through the colleges because of all the unrest. Madison, Wisconsin, right up here, they blew up government buildings to destroy the selective service records. Remember Kent State, Allison Krauss walking to class that day. 
The, the students were rowdy. They were in town breaking windows. They came back on the campus. They threatened to burn down the ROTC building there. The National Guard was called, and for several days, the students harassed them, and they stood there. One day, somebody gave an order, and the National Guard began to shoot live bullets into the students that were out there harassing them. Allison Krauss, 19 years old, lay on the ground dead. Three of her classmates lay beside her. They're dead. Nine others were shot and wounded, and some never walked again. They were critically hit. This is America. Let's not forget the racial tension going on down in the South. They had the Black Panthers. They had, uh, remember the Chicago National Convention, they're Democratic. They had the Weathermen. They had uh, uh, Jerry Rubin and all of them. They killed uh, John F. Kennedy. They killed Martin Luther King. They killed Robert F. Kennedy. All of these events are taking place when I was just a young man, without the Lord, without any foundation, and now they were sending me back to that war. And so when I landed in Saigon, I was quite messed up because of my lifestyle. They put us up in the Victoria Hotel. We were waiting in transportation down to the Mekong Delta where I would serve my time on a place called Seafloat. A bunch of barges welded together out in the Mekong River down there, way down deep. And I remember uh, I had dropped some acid. I remember walking across the room as the sun was setting. I, I pulled back those sliding glass doors and stood out on the balcony <clears throat> and off in the distance, I could see the war was still going on. You could see the parachute flares. You could see tracer bullets in the distance. You could hear the sound of gunfire going off way out there somewhere. Down in the street below was a military vehicle, and somebody was on a bullhorn crying out for all the GIs to get inside the building because of the curfew that was in effect. And uh, this, this LSD trip began to take over my mind, and it turned into a, a horrendous bad trip. Uh, the cockroaches that were crawling up and down the walls turned into monsters. The walls themselves begin to just uh, dissolve, it looked like. Uh, the little drip in the faucet in the bathroom sounded like hammer blows. But the worst part was these hideous voices inside my head screaming at me, John, just look at yourself. Look what you become. And they show me faces of uh, my high school buddies over here in Fort Atkinson that had been killed in that war. Larry Smith, Gary Smith, Terry Beck. They hadn't even turned 20 yet. Uh, two of them didn't last two months in Vietnam. The other one made it four months. Terry Beck quit school his junior year, joined the Marines, and while his classmates were starting into senior year, he came home in a body bag. And these hideous voices continued to scream at me and said, John, you're going to die over here. Why don't you just end your misery right now? And my mind's not under my own control now. It's being uh, helped along by this hideous drug trip that I'm on. I walk over to the bed. I pull out my 9 millimeter pistol, and I got that pistol in my hand ready to take my life when I heard a little voice. That's the same voice that I heard one time before when I was about seven years old. My mom and dad didn't get along very well. They had five boys and a girl. They got divorced. My dad was an alcoholic. He uh, was living in a different state down here in Chicago. Uh, my mom was left to raise us in Fort Atkinson. Uh, five boys and a girl were all, you know, I think my older brother and I were like in third grade, second grade, and the rest of the kids were in the house. And it was really hard on my mom. She almost uh, had several different nervous breakdowns. 
I remember she would grab me for some reason and she would place her head on my, my chest and she would just cry and cry and cry and I couldn't handle that. I broke out in hives and migraine headaches and we went to see the doctor and he couldn't find anything physically wrong and he knew that it was an emotional stress that, that was taking its toll on my mind and my little body there. I took a wagon one day and I you know, was going from door to door collecting pop bottles so you could take them down to the local store and cash them in and uh, you had candy, you know, candy money. It was on the way home that day that I heard that voice for the first time. I, I went and visited that place while I was here a couple of days ago, Lincoln Street. I could take you to the spot where it happened today, just walking along with my wagon and uh, I heard a voice and it spoke to me and said, John, I'm here and I love you and I got a plan for your life. My earthly father wasn't there, he was in Chicago. But my heavenly father reached down that day and gave me a big hug and let me know that he was real. My mom had sent us down to the corner church one half block away, a little Trinity Lutheran church. And for the first time I heard little Bible stories and my favorite one was the shepherd that left the 99 in the fold and would go out and find that one lost sheep. But up until that time, I didn't really know if there was a real God. They never led me to an experience. But that day, God spoke my name. So you know, God knows who you are. And thank God for this beautiful building. Thank God for the, the shepherds that God's provided and the church staff and the wonderful music we had here this morning. That's all wonderful. But there's a lot of people that aren't in church today. I want you to know that you may have loved ones, they may be a thousand miles away somewhere, sitting on a bar stool, but the God that spoke to me on that little Lincoln Street and the God that spoke to me in that hotel in Vietnam can speak a language that everyone can understand. There's a God that cares. There's a God that knows. There's a God that loves. When I heard that voice, I put the gun down and I cried out to God and I said, God, if that's you, please deliver me from this war. Deliver me from these drugs and I'll do anything you want me to do. Now, I'm well aware there's a lot of plea bargaining that goes on in situations like that. Someone said there are no atheists in foxholes. But I want you to think about your life for a moment. I think when things get real rough in anybody's life, I think we all know where the church is. We, we, know, we know how to contact the pastor. But when things get better, often we just, you know, put God on the shelf and we just kind of go our own way. But in that hotel room, I'm, I'm, I'm just trying to reminisce a little bit and it still amazes me that God would visit someone like me high on an LSD trip, living such an immoral life. But that's the God that we have here. When God shows up to a sinner's door, he doesn't appear like a judge with a gavel in his hand. Our God is a God of love. Our God is a God of mercy. You need to understand that when God created this world, he created it for his own pleasure. And when God made man in his image, he made us special, different than any other creature that's out here on this earth right now.
God made you for him. And he, he looks at every soul that's born. He looks at every individual that's born and he values each and every one. When he went to Calvary, he died for every sinner. He died for every person. Even if they're not in this building right now, God died for them and he's not going to give up. He speaks a language that we all can understand. You can't escape his love. God is working overtime around the world. He found me in that hotel room. He found me with a gun pointed at my head. I was seconds away from going into eternity when he stilled my hand by a sweet voice that just said, John, I'm here and I love you and I've got a plan for your life. Now that's not salvation, but it's God working. It's God coming to me. It's God embracing me. It's God revealing himself to me in a little mind that doesn't fully yet understand who he is. But that's the kind of God we serve. There was a lot of God talk in Vietnam. I saw a lot of these young boys. You see, when you face eternity, when you face life and death every single day, you think about the hereafter. Sometimes life just goes on and we, we don't even think of, give God one thought during the day. But if you had a near-death experience and you're facing eternity, or if you're on your deathbed, I think everybody contemplates and thinks a little bit about what's gonna happen once you're gone. And young men in that war, I saw lots of them go hear what the preacher had to say when he flew in maybe once or twice a month. I'm down in the Mekong Delta, very dangerous place. I wasn't there very long. Our job was to blow up things, underwater demolition. We, were t we had two boats. We were going down a small stream. But the Viet Cong lived down there. The Viet Cong ruled that place. The Viet Cong, that was their backyard, their home. They knew where our boats would be going. They had little tunnels dug into the side banks of those streams, and they could come in and out. They had water mines under that little stream waiting for us. They had claymore mines up in the trees. They had their B-40 rockets. And when those two boats got right to where they wanted us, all hell broke loose. Our boat was seemingly lifted out of the water and uh, the shrapnel from the, from the Claymore mines were coming down on top of us and the B-40 rockets were hitting our boat from both sides. We fought back, of course. We had two 30s on both sides of that boat. We had a 50. In between the 30s, we had a 105 cannon on top of that boat. We had called in for helicopter support, but it seemed like it uh, took ages for them to arrive. And when they finally did, they directed those, their rockets in pinpoint accuracy on both sides of that stream until we were in charge of that firefight and the Viet Cong disappeared in those tunnels or wherever they went. Our boat was so, so, so hit, so inoperable, it had to be towed in. During that firefight, I felt pain. I put my hand down and it came up full of blood, so I realized I'd taken some shrapnel. When we got back to our base after the boat was towed in, we looked at the damage that was done. Our boat was hit with eight of those B-40 rockets. On the other side of this little metal railing where I was crouched behind, there was a B-40 rocket. The nose end was stuck into that metal grating. The tail end was still sticking out. It had not detonated. If it would have detonated, I doubt if I'd been here today sharing my story. You say, well, those things are, you know, a coincidence. They happen, and I'm sure they do. 
but how many of you believe in angels? The Bible says in Hebrews, are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister to them that shall be, shall be heirs of salvation? I was not an heir yet, but God knew that someday I would be. And I believe it was the hand of God that brought me out. I want you to think a moment because I think everyone has lived long enough on this earth, you can look back and you can say, you know, I almost died there. I could have drowned in that one place. I could have died in that car accident. I could have died in the hospital. I could have died with that sickness. There's, there's moments in your life where you know you could have gone on to the other side. And I'm sure that some of you believe in angels and I believe that some of those angels were there to help you. But it's gonna blow our mind, church, when we get to the other side. And God begins to reveal to us all the times there's been angelic intervention and we don't even know it. Listen, there's a God that loves you. There's a God that cares about you. There's a God that knows your address. He knows your name and he's not gonna give up. There's a God of love. There's a God of mercy. Mercy is, is what we all need. It's not what we deserve. Grace is what we need. It's not what we deserve. And there's a God that will not give up on you there's a God that will come to you over and over again to nudge you, to encourage you. If he has to pull you sometime because God wants to reveal himself to every man and every woman because he died for you. He created you and he wants you with him in eternity. <clears throat> but he's given us the free will. He's a gentleman. He'll never force you. But he will nudge you, encourage you, and love you, and draw you, and do whatever he can and whatever he does to get your attention. Well, that little leg wound was really good for me because it took me out of that heavy fighting. They, they pulled the lead out of my leg and it left a long hole. And it had to be packed every day, twice, I believe. And it took a long time to heal. And I went from one hospital to the other. I ended up in a, a recovery hospital in Cameron Bay. And to show you how bad the drugs were, when I walked, when I, when I arrived and got off the plane with a, a few other patients, they put us in a briefing room and told us the drug situation was way out of control. And I thought it was a come on. They said somebody had died the night before there out on the beach. They had a drug overdose. But a couple of days later, we were watching the film outside in the bleachers. I saw officers and enlisted walking through that crowd selling dope as if it was popcorn. And that's the kind of Vietnam that I was in. It was a place that, was, that had so many ways to destroy a human being. And drugs was just one of them. I was looking at the calendar and I realized that my teammates would be rotating out and I wanted to rotate out with my teammates. And so I went to the doctors and I asked them for orders to go back to my unit and they said I could not because my leg was not yet healed enough. But I learned what persistence can do. You just keep going back and they get tired of seeing you. And finally they gave me orders and gave me dressings and gave me bandages and sent me on my way. 
And in Vietnam, you had to hitchhike to kind of go from one place to the other. And my first ride out was with a civilian plane, a Piper plane with two uh, American pilots that were doing business over there. And we were taking off and we're getting altitude and we almost got knocked out of the sky by uh, some jets that were coming over us. And I remember thinking, there's so many ways to die over here. We landed and I got another ride. I ended up in Saigon waiting for transportation back down to my unit. I went back to that same hotel, Victoria, and I run into some of my SEAL team teammates. They're, they're from Da Nang and they're on R&R, some time off, and they look at me and they, they're, they're happy to see me, but, they, but I also notice there's something about their countenance that's different, and they said, you haven't heard, have you? I said, heard what? Well, while you were recovering in the hospital, we lost five of our SEAL team guys. I said, no, you're kidding, who, where? And they said, right there where you were in Seafloat. I said, no, who were they? And he started naming off. I knew all of them, they were very close. Three of them went through my same training class. We rode motorcycles together, we partied together, and now they're gone. Five Navy buddies gone, three hometown buddies gone. And I'm thinking, God, why me? Why am I alive? Well, why did 58,000 plus boys and women die in that war? And why did some of us make it home alive? I really don't have the answer. But I do believe this, that when God looked down in that hotel room and he, he saw a little smoke down here somewhere, not a lot, just a little tiny desire, a little flame. That's all God ever needs to see in a human being. If God sees a small desire, I believe the angels in heaven will come near and they'll fan that little desire so it can start burning because God knows if he ever gets your attention, if he ever gets a little desire burning enough, he can draw you in. And if he can draw you in, he can lead you to salvation so you can spend eternity with him. Well, when I landed back in the United States, I knew it was God that delivered me from Vietnam. But I did not run to the first church and get saved either. That's not what us humans do. Humans run from God for some reason. But there's a God that chases us. There's a God that's on our trail. And there was a God that was chasing after me and I would hear his voice over and over again, John, I've got something better. I've got something better. I've got something better. And you know how much God loved you and how much he loves me. He puts events in our life. He puts people in our life. When I was, when I was wounded in Vietnam, they gave me another stripe for some reason. They called it a Ho Chi Minh. I'm now an E5, second class petty officer. They put me in charge of the intelligence division, one officer over me. But they brought a young man in from the fleet, the regular Navy. He had not gone through SEAL team training. He had not gone through Hell Week and all of that. And that's why it's unusual. And they brought him right into my department. And he was a good Baptist boy. And he knew that God was dealing with me. Because out of one side of my mouth, it was, you know, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And out of the other side of my mouth, it was just me, we're John. My father was a Rosicrucian. I believe he died one. 
He believed in reincarnation. He would send me books to read when I was in high school, all his teachings that he was getting out of San Jose. And in Vietnam, he continued to send me stuff to read, Edward Casey books and all, all these weird things. I was getting involved in self-hypnosis. I was seeking out palm readers. And you're thinking, wow, I thought you were getting into Jesus. Well, I didn't know too much about him at that time. I'm searching. You see, if you search and look for God, you might not find truth. But if you seek truth, you will always find God. And this Baptist boy gave me literature to read, and I started reading it, and then I got a desire to know more, so I bought a Bible. I began to read the Bible, and then I realized that people who read Bibles usually go to church somewhere. So I went church shopping. I went to every church group denomination in the little town of Coronado there across from San Diego. You know, there's something, there's a homing instinct, I believe, in human beings that belongs to God. God communicates with that spirit, and he, and he kind of hones you in. And so I think there's an automatic, there's a feeling when you get close to God, there's just some things that you feel that you need to do. And I don't know why, but in this particular church service, I felt very strong need to go and repent. So I, I ran down to the altar. But in this particular church, I don't think people did that because I was down there all by myself for seemingly a very long time. And I realized I, I just messed up their church service. I'm not making fun, it's just what happened. And a couple of men, I think, saved me. They came down and picked me up and ushered me out the side door so I wouldn't continue to disrupt their service. And uh, I think they probably sat me down and, and uh, led me to a sinner's prayer or something. But you know, that day when I left that church, I was excited about what happened because that's the closest I ever got to God. Do you know that this Christian walk is a journey? And every step along the way is a big step for every person. No matter who you are or what experience you have, as you're coming towards God, every little step along the way is beautiful. Every step along the way is good. Every step along the way is God reaching out. And I, I'm excited about what happened. I'm, I'm rejoicing on the way home. And then it hit me. I'm going to go home and get high because that's my habit. I did it every day. And I'm thinking, well, if I'm saved, why am I feeling like this? And I had a little talk with Jesus that day. And I said, if this is all you got, I'm not going to make it. I said, where's the power? And you know, you start asking those kinds of questions. God's got answers. And he had my answer about three and a half minutes later. Because I'm walking down the alley where I live. I live up above a garage in the alley. And on the steps that led up, there's a little reminder paper. Normally, I'd pick it up and just throw it in the trash can. But that day, that little voice said, pick it up. And I did. And I opened up that, you know, tore up the staple. And I saw this little advertisement. It said, Pentecostal Church Revival Begins Imperial Beach, California. And I began to read more. And it said, those interested in receiving the Holy Spirit with the evidence of speaking in other tongues can come and find out more. I don't know what speaking in tongues was. That's the first time I ever heard of it. 
but it sounded really cool to me. So I said, I'm going to go to that revival. That was a week later. You know, the devil doesn't want you to go to church so that next week, Sunday night, there's a knock on my door. And there's a couple of my teammates, party time. You know, they're already high on something and they're inviting me to go wherever they're going. But you know what I did that night? I did what every human being on this earth needs to do if they ever get serious about God. I drew the line. And I said to my friends, you know what? I'm so sick and tired of living like this. I wake up in the morning. I look into that mirror over there, and I can't stand what looks back at me. I said, that's not me. That's not what I want to be. It's what the drugs and the alcohol and this lifestyle done to me. And I said, I'm tired of it. I don't want this anymore. I said, I want God. And I said, I'm going to go to church. And when I said church, they made a beeline for the door. <laughs> you know, when it's your time, when, when you get an invitation from God, you can't wait for the parents, you can't wait for the wife, you can't wait for the husband, you can't wait for the friends. That's your personal invitation. And when God was speaking to me, I had to decide, do I want my friends or do I want God? Do I want my family or do I want God? And I said, I want God. And so I'm looking around the apartment trying to find that little news article to have the article. I can't find it. I thought my roommate Nick throwing it out in the garbage. So I'm down in the alley going through our garbage can looking for it. It's not there. So what do desperate people do? You just go down that alley going through everybody else's trash can. <laughs> I had people staring at me from their windows wondering what not, you know, what's this guy doing in our garbage can? But who cares, you know? I finally found a soggy paper with the address. I ran back to my Ford van, squealed down the alleyway, headed down Marietta, got to the Silver Strand, and headed south fast as I could drive. Under the speed limit. I passed the Navy base, and I'm hearing this little voice again. It said, John, are you going to go by yourself? I turn around. I drive in to the base and I start knocking on all the barracks doors of people I know. Nobody wants to go to church. So I go back to the parking lot and I start up my ignition and Rick Wickham pulls up. He rolls down his window and I roll down mine. He said, hey, John, what's up? I said, I'm going to go to church. Would you like to join me? He thought about it. He said, okay. You know, God knows what he's doing. We find this little Pentecostal church. We walk in. I want you to know that that church was ready for us. But I don't know if we were ready for them. <laughs> and uh, the church is much smaller than this. And I had a, a row of chairs. I had the aisle and it led right up to the wall. So there's only one way out and that's the aisle. And as the church began... I mean, they were on fire. They, they were worshiping with all their heart and mind and soul. We never seen anything like that. And my friend Rick is freaking out. And he's pushing at me. And I said, what's going on? He said, I'm out of here. I said, no. I had him blocked in. I said, there's something going on here that I want to figure out. We're staying. And I'm so glad that I did because that night something got a hold of me from the top of my head all the way down to my feet. The preacher was preaching about the 
first church, and he was in the book of Acts, and he was preaching about, you know, when Jesus told Nicodemus, except a man be born of the water and of the spirit, he cannot enter in the kingdom of heaven. And then he took us to the end of Luke where Jesus was standing ready to depart. And he said, I want you to go on to Jerusalem and, and tarry there, wait for the promise of my spirit. And then he talked about the upper room experience. And while they're tarrying, the Bible says in the book of Acts chapter 2, and when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all in one accord in one place. And then suddenly, you know, there's a visitation by the Spirit of God. Cloven tongues sat upon each of them. And then they all began to receive the Holy Spirit with the evidence of speaking in tongues. And then he preached a little bit of Peter's sermon, you know. He's preaching to a crowd that's gathered around in Jerusalem because of the feast day called Pentecost. And he's preaching Jesus Christ. He's telling the crowd, this same one that you crucified, it was really the Messiah. They're convicted. And they cry out, men and brethren, what shall we do? And the, then Peter gives the first altar call ever written in the Bible that this is the answer for the church even today. He said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you and to your children and to those that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And he's given an altar call, and I hear this voice speaking to me, go, 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 that's why you're here, that's why you came. But my feet kept saying no. <laughs> you know, all God ever wants is one step. And you're going to have that opportunity so many times in your walk as you're walking with God in revelation. He's just going to require one step of faith, one step of obedience. Uh, somehow I took a step. I don't remember anymore I find myself at an altar. I'm crying out to God. I, I have years, I guess I was 21, 21 years of just sin in my life. I'm crying out to God with everything I got. I'm going through a list in my mind. I'm just repenting of everything I can think of. And I'm down there a long time. Tears are streaming down my cheeks. And then all of a sudden my hands are lifted up towards heaven. And I start speaking a heavenly language that I'd never spoke before. I look over to my right, and there's my friend Rick. He's speaking in tongues, too. And then, you know what Pentecostals do, apostolics, they want to talk to you about water baptism. I said, you know, I've got this appointment in Coronado at this other church in about three weeks, but that didn't seem to deter them. They gave me a Bible study, Acts chapter 2, Jesus' name, Acts chapter 8, Jesus' name, Acts chapter 19, Jesus' name, Act, you know, all the way through. And they took him back to Acts chapter 2 where it said, and they that gladly received the word were baptized. I said, man, let's do it. Two big guys walked over to the organ. They picked it up, moved it over here. Under the organs, a roll rug, they rolled up the rug over there. Under the rugs, the trap door, open the trap door. There's the water. <laughs> you know, if you've never been baptized in that wonderful name of Jesus, 
You don't know what you're missing. Because Jesus is the one who came. Jesus is the one who was born to save your sins. Jesus is the one who went to Calvary. Jesus is the one they whipped. Jesus is the one they nailed to the cross. Jesus is the one who, who had the throne of corns, you know. Jesus is the one where the spear went into his side. Jesus is the one who died for your sins. Jesus is the one that they buried in the tomb. And Jesus is the one who rose from the dead. And Jesus is the one who sent back his spirit. And the, and the book of Hebrews said, and without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. And so when that minister put me down under that water in full immersion, because we're buried with Christ, and we're buried with him, and when you die, you don't just get some dust sprinkled on you, but burial, my sins were removed. And so when I came up out of that water, I, f I felt like, man, like I never felt before. Every sin was washed away. Every sin was removed as far as the east is from the west. And I wanted to hug everybody. And so I'm driving home. I'm looking across the San Diego Bay. I see thousands of lights in those buildings. And I realize that those people inside those Buildings represent people that need Jesus. I go back to my apartment and I went on a search and destroy mission. I grabbed a pillowcase and filled it up with all the pot and all the hashes and all the LSD and everything I can find, paraphernalia, water pipe, all that. Took it down to the San Diego Bay and I baptized them. I went back to my apartment and I took two cardboard boxes and I filled them up to the brim with things that I borrowed from the Navy. And the next morning I took them back and laid them on the officer's desk and said, sir, there's been a change in my life. He thought I lost my mind because everybody had stuff they borrowed from the Navy and never took back. And I'd become a living, raging maniac for Jesus. They would see me coming and they would run in every direction. <laughs> but I could run as fast as they could. I'd just catch up with them in the locker room, shower, didn't matter, in their homes. Finally, they got together and said, John's going to drive us crazy. We might as well just go and get it over with. <laughs> and so I filled up my Ford van and we're driving to church. I look back in the mirror and my roommate's passing a brown sack around, and I say, hey, what's in the sack? He said, whiskey. I said, well, what are you doing with the whiskey? We're going to church. He said, I know I'm getting courage. I said, you don't need that, just come. Well, they got into that same atmosphere that I was in, and the same thing happened to them that happened to me. I saw my teammates come to an altar. I saw them repenting. I saw God filling them with the Holy Spirit. And revival broke out big time. <clears throat> I went back to that area about 15 years later and took a friend who wanted to see how the SEALs are trained. And the captain of the training unit's given us a tour. 
And while he's giving us a tour, I pass him one of my books that's out there. And he stops as he's reading the back. He goes, you're the guy. I said, what do you mean I'm the guy? He said, they still talk about this revival. Years later, I said, why? He said, because it changed so many lives. And here's the most beautiful part. Dozens of my friends were repenting and getting filled with the Holy Ghost. But five of, my, five of us, including me, were called into the ministry. Jim Galoni ended up pastoring the very church that we got saved in. Nick Nicholson was an evangelist before he passed away with cancer. Tommy Bracken's a missionary to Taiwan. Ramos Flores is in Puerto Rico. And here I stand this morning as a testament to the awesome power of our almighty God. Can we stand together? Amen. On this side of Calvary, I look back and I can see where God was working in my life. As I was walking this way towards Calvary, I didn't notice that was God that much. But as you look back now, you can see that was God. God was there. God was there. God was there. That little lady that would cross the street, pat me on the head and give me a little hug and say, Jesus loves you. That was just God. All the little steps along the way. You see, when we finally get to heaven, it's going to be one revelation after the other. It's not going to end. You're not going to just be sitting on a cloud playing a harp. I hope not. I never had a harp lesson, so I'd be left out. But I believe God is going to continue to reveal himself. There's so much that we're going to know and want to know, and it's going to take all eternity. But while we're down here on this earth, you're going to get a little glimpse. You're going to get a little peace. God's going to show you more. And if you just keep walking, he'll show you more. If you keep obeying, he'll show you more. There's going to be one revelation after the other as he continues to give you more insight and more understanding. And the more that you obey, the more he will give back. And I don't know where you are this morning in your walk with God. This may be your first introduction to a church. It may be that you've been on the journey walking with him for years. But maybe there's more that God wants to reveal to you. The journey never ends. I'm, I'm, I know I don't look it, but I'm 16 years old. No, I'm 70 years old and God is still talking to me and God is still revealing things to me. And it's getting sweeter and sweeter as the day goes by. And he won't give up. There's always more. That's what God does. God does everything. God, God created us and then he died for us and made a way after man sinned. God calls you. God reaches out. He speaks a language that you can understand. He apprehends you. He nudges you, encourages you. He draws you in. He gives you the ability to feel conviction. He takes away your sins in repentance. He remits them in water baptism. He fills you with his spirit so he gives you the power to continue on and to reveal more and to teach you more. 
It's God. From the very beginning to the awesome end. And I don't know where you are right now, but there's a God that knows your name. He knows where you live. And he died for you. And he wants you to know that if you were the only one that was ever born on this earth, that he would have done it just for you. I'm asking the congregation to come. If you're a guest today, you're welcome to join us. I think it's always good to come and do a little reminiscing and a reminder of how good God's been to you. There's one thing about sharing a testimony. Everybody has a journey and everybody can relate. Everyone can relate. Hallelujah. I want you to experience God's love this morning. If you just close your eyes and reach out to him, why don't you just call on his name? Amen. That's your savior. That's that's your Lord. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for Calvary. Thank you for dying for us, Lord. We love you, Lord. We love you, Lord. We love you, Lord. Thank you for calling my name. Thank you for nudging me through the years. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for protecting me. Thank you for healing me. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, sweet Lord. Thank you for listening to this Abundant Life Church podcast. We pray it has strengthened your relationship with God and will continue to be a light unto your pathway to heaven. If you have any questions or comments regarding this podcast, please telephone our ministerial team at 262-965-5177 or email us at info at abundantlifechurch.org.